This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramaytush Ohlone land. Through our programming, we strive to amplify the voices of those who have historically been underrepresented. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. Wow, Darsha, it's so uh, great to be with these folks. They've been so amazing in this half hour of prep that we've had, and I can just imagine uh, who's out there in the audience listening to us. You know, I usually end some of our presentations and interviews that we've had together with uh, the Cherokee lullaby that was sung by the women on the Trail of Tears. I- I'd like to start uh, with that instead today. Is that okay with you? That sounds good. All right, I, I think that it-, it will set the tone uh, for the conversation Uh, let people know that during the most difficult of times, as certainly the Trail of Tears was, seeing the beauty and the responsibility of all the other creatures. And that's what the lyrics to this song were about. Did you see the animals in the clouds? Did you see the dancing grasses? Did you see the beautiful colors of the the fish and hear the sounds of the birds? And uh, I think it's important to remember that uh, no matter how difficult things are, and our, and, and our conversation is going to be talking about difficult things, um, that it's important to remember that we're not alone and that there's beauty all around. So I'd like everyone to tune in and uh, uh, participate by just being a part of understanding and remembering this wisdom of the women on the Trail of Tears singing this song. Breathe deeply. I, uh, yesterday, um, I was doing some work outside and I walked in to the house and my wife was, uh, watching a documentary or something on the, 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 the screen. And, uh, it was interrupted with a press conference and the press conference was, uh, uh, in the mid talking about the gun violence that would happen in New York and stuff like that. But, as I was starting to walk out, one of the journalists, one of the gentlemen journalists asked the question um, uh, to, I think Jin Psaki is the, is, the, is the lady with the beautiful red hair, they call her. Um, uh, he, he said that, uh, um, what is the president doing? What is President Biden doing to, um, to deal with the uh, lack of humanity for for humans that we're uh, what what is he really doing about that? And as I walked out, I thought, well, that's, that was a, probably a good question in many ways, but it really made me think about what we're going to be doing today. And, and I and I want to start with this idea of uh, 
this this focus on humans only, I think is maybe one of the greatest challenges that we have in, in re-embracing the worldview that guided us for, as you say, 99% of human history. That, that um, if, if we can understand that this kinship that we talk about in our book, that restoring of the kinship, uh, really brings about a much broader idea. Uh, and I wanted to just, uh, you know, talk about how the, you know, the, the mysterious creating energy that, you know, we refer to uh, in indigenous cultures is almost always as a, as a great mysterious thing, sort of a verb even. Um, that that uh, this energy used the stars and the rivers and the mountains and the plants to to teach us how to live in a good way, and 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 I and I just wanted to read an excerpt from our chapter nine and our chapter eleven. Chapter nine is, opens with uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer uh, from the Potawatomi Nation. Uh, it's entitled "All Earth Entities Are Sentient." She says the taking of another life to support. Your own is far more significant when you recognize the beings who are harvested as persons, non-human persons vested with awareness, intelligence, and spirit, and who have families waiting for them at home. Killing a who demands something different than killing an it. When you regard those non-human persons as kinfolk, another set of harvesting regulations extends beyond bag limits and legal Seasons. That's just a, a portion of her opening quote. Uh, and similarly, uh, Professor LeBlanc, uh, himself a Christian theologian, is critical of the anthropocentrism in our world, especially in our, our religions. Uh, and he, he writes in chapter 11, uh, and this is a, an excerpt from it, the title is Non-Anthropocentrism, um, and Terry is uh, a, a Micmac. Uh, he, he says the creation itself is groaning. This, Native people would argue, characterizes the lived theology of the majority of the evangelical church, even today, as it has done through the ages. It's precisely this framework that allowed Christian missionaries to cross large bodies of water to where, if they had not brought God, God would not have been present. How is it that the Christian church could articulate this principle of uh, of the omnipresence of God, and yet call us godless heathens in a godless heathen land. If I had a platform to do so, he says, I would want to cry loudly that it is in the rest of creation then that we find the gifts of the Spirit most consistently manifest to teach us to talk about the past and the present. We find this expression in the natural way of life, which creatures living in a more intuitive relationship with this creator tend to express. Why don't you ask the birds in the air, the fish that swim in the sea, the animals that walk on the land, speak to the earth itself? Which of these do not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? My grandfather and people of this generation used to say that animals are indeed persons. They're not just people. So with that opening of this very difficult subject of a non-anthropocentric worldview, very difficult to grasp, even when you're trying to ask an important question like the journalist was yesterday in the press conference. So, Darsha, from, from a developmental standpoint uh, uh, in, in your specialty, 
in what ways can we broaden this uh, idea of, of a sense of kinship with childbearing and child, child raising? I mean, that would be, it seems a, to be a, a starting place for us. Yes, it's uh, really uh, vital. These days, we aren't providing what children need really to foster their full potential, which includes a sense of, of the living earth. Our past was, uh, in most of societies, were spent uh, living in partnership with the natural world uh, and treating them as persons, as you say. And what we've done is we've undermined that early life experience. Um, so the brain just doesn't develop all the systems well, and we get very self-centered as a result because we don't feel quite right. We're dysregulated on multiple levels, and I could say more about that later. But I think we have to explain what we mean then by this kinship perspective. It's the embracing of the whole, of feeling part of the cosmos. It's feeling part of uh, the dynamism of, of the universe, essentially, and having a sense of the mystery and the, the movement and partnership. Uh, and we've lost that because we disconnect children, babies in particular, uh, from early life, and they, they, their continuum of feeling connected is broken by leaving them alone, leaving them to cry, not uh, touching them all the time pretty much in early life and not letting them wander in the natural world and connect. Uh, so there's so many ways that we've uh, pulled people away from our true nature, which is being Earth-centric. Well, so just what, what, uh, what I was saying earlier about the origin stories of all the cultures that I've lived with and, and studied, um, that, that the, the original kind of wisdom was uh, from the animals, from the trees, from the rivers and, and the mountains and the winds. Imagine if a child from the beginning, you know, that there was this kind of assumption that it's not going to be me uh, uh, or, you know, the other parent or the teachers or the books or the documentaries or that's going to give you the main information. It's, it's going to be, and if that, you learn that, you know, from six months on and, and uh, I mean, in a way, I did this with, with my daughter and horses. I mean, from the time she was able to be in a front pack, uh, you know, she was on, on horses and horses were, were our teeth, were our teachers. And of course, in the wilderness, we would bump into other, other creatures, but uh, has, have you ever been able to at, at, Notre Dame talk about how parents uh, do use, uh, you know, I mean, certainly the, the, the storybooks are all cartoon animals, it seems like. And so it seems like there's something there. But, uh, you know, I just want parents that are out there and, and, and that, that have young children to be able to say this, you know, even if they, their computers turn off in five minutes, that, wow, this is someplace that we can go. Well, we do have an, uh, we, uh, in our book, we talk about child connection to nature, right? We have a, a Viola Cordova's example she gives of, of two oh, mothers. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the nature connection, specifically, um, she was giving an example of the two mothers. The, uh, the indigenous mother takes her baby to the, uh, let's say, a, a local park, because that's where they live. 
and introduces the baby, the young child, to the trees, to the animals there, the plants, and lets the child explore on the, in the dirt and, uh, you know, uh, expects the child to honor and uh, the well-being of the other non, the non-humans, the other than humans. Then the other mother is a Western-raised, um, uh, dominant culture person who takes her child to the same place and then uh, puts down a blanket and then says, don't touch that, that's dirty. Don't, don't go over there, that's dangerous. And introduces the child to the natural world in a very distinctive way, right? And I think that's sort of embedded in our Western kind of culture over the last hundreds of years. Nature is dangerous, nature is not us, <laughs> it's inferior, and all that kind of cultural assumptions that we come to nat- the natural world with. Yeah, get out the bug spray and make sure there's no snakes around. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Ooh. <laughs> well, you know, it kind of reminds me of, uh, uh, you know, that I've done this a lot, uh, where I'll go to, into a, a classroom or a presentation somewhere, and, and I'll ask, I'll have pre-scouted out a place where there's bushes or trees. And I'll ask people, set their stuff down and go out the hallway and turn left and go out the doors and touch a tree and come back. And people will do this with, you know, a little bit of dismay in their eyes. And when they come back, they uh, start to sit down and I, I stop them and I say, forgive me, but I want you to do this one more time. And, uh, and I promise it's the last time. I want you to go out again and touch a bush. You can do the same one or a different one. But this time I want you to ask permission and do so sincerely and wait for some kind of an answer. Oftentimes people will guffaw or laugh and, and uh, when I do it with, you know, some of the tough kids and, and uh, adjudicated kids, they'll, 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 uh, they'll, they'll, they'll say some more strong words, but I, I'll tell you, I've done it so many times. And when people come back, there's always a tear in someone's eyes. Uh, there's always a certain silence, a certain respect for listening to how people talk out. And the stories that people say about getting a feeling uh, that that a tree or bush actually said something or gave that permission. And then when they touched it, they had a special feeling. And uh, and so, you know, we're it's in our DNA. And so th- this this is the nature-based worldview that is in our epigenetics and, and probably in our genetics. And I think that uh, um, it's it's not quite as crazy as it might sound. Right. And what I discovered in my work integrating across sciences is that when you under care for a child that means you're you don't provide what our species evolved to provide what we call the evolved nest so that's soothing birth breastfeeding for several years a welcoming social climate uh, of multiple adult caregivers and and who are responsive free play social play with in the natural world and healing practices and lots of positive touch when you don't provide that system of care then you develop, uh, the systems get underdeveloped and the child is easily triggered into fear, easily triggered into, uh, and then anxiety and depression over time. And it, there's, the Nazis knew that this was a great way to raise kids because you could control them later. They don't remember what happened in those first years of life, 
because our the way our brain is developing, you don't have the verbal knowledge, but your body remembers and you you easily go into the bracing mode. And we've established that as a way to raise children in the Western world and wherever we've been Westernized. And then we can't open our hearts to the natural world, to one another, to uh, who we are, our real selves, or we don't develop ourselves very well. We find things that make us feel safe. And we can see the triggering going on in so many adults now in the United States. And uh, it's very distressing because you don't think very well when the stress response kicks in, the blood flow shifts away from your higher order thinking to your muscles so you can run or fight, you know. And, and physiologically, then, we're setting people up not to reach their full human nature, which is a kin-centric way of being. So the more fear, the less, the less heart, uh, the less trust, certainly uh, starting at young age and moving on into adulthood with all the phobias that are, that are listed in the DSM, uh, we, we, we are not going to respond to a strange looking creature, whether it be a caterpillar or a mouse or a cockroach or a dog uh, in, in, a, in a way that our, our, our first inclination is to be interested and curious and to maybe even be willing to want to learn from. Instead, it's as you said, it's this guardedness. And then, and that continues because, you know, during the first few years of life, we are literally, uh, you know, walking hypno hypnosis machines. I mean, that's why we can learn 10 languages in the first five years. And, and that, that skill we'll talk about later is, is really uh, something that indigenous people understood that willful determination uh, it was not sufficient to really become a fearless person, to become a generous person, to become skilled at different, different things. It required a combination of cognitive ability and this meditative or trance-based uh, imagery. You know, Einstein said, you know, imagination is more powerful than knowledge. And they understood that. And, and, and all, without knowing the neuroscience of, of, of the phenomenon of hypnosis, which I, of course, taught at UC Berkeley for MFCC licensures, um, we use ceremony because ceremony is essentially going into that lower brainwave frequency with an intention and an image and imagining it in ways that can, can heal or bring us to those, those places. So even though we're talking about early childhood and, and infancy, uh, we still have that skill all creatures do. I, I learned it from wild horses, as you know. Um, but we still have that skill, and we'll come back to how these things we're talking about aren't just uh, at the early ages. We can we can begin to turn around now, but it's a lot harder. Right. <clears throat> so ceremony for a baby is is being carried in the arms of the parent and falling asleep and feeling safe and the, secure and that they can relax and let let go of any anxiety uh, and so when you leave a baby alone to sleep alone or crying they don't get that feeling right they don't have this oh totally letting go feeling which is part of that uh way of interacting with the natural world that is so healing you know when you earth when you lie on the ground and you feel like oh, you just uh, disappear into the earth 
that's the feeling we want. That's the oxytocin flowing uh, and various other hormones that give us a sense of being okay. And a lot of kids never get that feeling because they're always worried if they're going to be left alone now or how long will it be. And so that, you know, it's just a lot of dysregulation and disorder and fear. And so when they meet the ant, they stomp on the ant instead of watching and learning from that. And then as adults, we, we stomp on each other and we, and, uh, and that's what we're doing with the wars, with the, with the shootings, uh, all of this is happening. And, you know, and, uh, it's never too late to, to learn is sort of an adage that I believe in, uh, and uh, um, I think that, that, that if we could change the language, for example, if that journalist had asked the press secretary, um, you know, uh, is, is the president doing anything about this, this uh, terrible treatment of humans against humans? If, what, if, what if that would have been the commonplace to say, what is the president doing about helping Americans see this, the, the, the sacredness of, of all life? You know, just as subtle as that sentence would have been, you know, millions and millions of people saw it, it would start to trigger uh, this this phenomenon. You know, I remember when I was uh, given a presentation with three soil scientists about the, the degradation of our of our soil. Um, I was on a panel with with with, uh, with the three of them uh, and I went last. And, and after they were done, I got up and I showed a slide um, uh and I kind of winked at them and I said to the audience, I said, you know, I learned a lot from these three engineers, soil engineers, vital information for us all to know about uh, the loss of nutrition in the soil, et cetera. I said, but you know what they're telling us, all that information, it's not going to, it's not really going to make a difference. And I kind of winked at them so they knew I was saying so in a loving way, not in a critical way. And then I, I showed a slide in which I had, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, I think it was. Yeah, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, Wendell Berry, and Mahatma Gandhi. Three people that I respect, you know, historical figures that I respect for their concern about soil. They've, they've all talked about it. And, uh, and so I showed the first three. And, and the, uh, Roosevelt said, a nation that destroys its soil destroys itself. I don't know if that sounded like Roosevelt or not. but uh, And then Gandhi said, to forget how to dig the earth and tend the soil is to forget ourselves. Wendell Berry, the great uh, environmental uh, philosopher, said, without proper care for the soil, we could have no life. So I showed that to everyone. I said, these are the kinds of things that our three soil engineers just told us. Um, but are they going to make a difference? It, it, because it, we're making this assumption that worldview, and we'll talk about what worldview is for our, our, our friends in the, uh, that are out they're listening to us, um, the fundamental way that we understand our relationship to nature and to each other and to supernature, if you will, um, wasn't, was, was reflecting the dominant worldview, that we got to take care of the soil so we'll be healthy. So then I read them, a, a presentation that uh, a portion of Chief Seattle's speech, and I'll try to see if I can remember it. Uh, I'm not going to do it justice, and I, I should find it. But he said something like, "Every part of the soil is sacred uh, to my people. Even the rocks thrill." He said, "Thrill with memories of of, of stirring events uh, connected uh, to, to to the lives of, of my people." 
and the, and I remember the last sentence and the very dust upon which we stand responds lovingly to our footsteps. And I asked the audience, can you see a difference between that one and the other three? And hands raised and people got it, you know, they got it. So, um, you know, I think if, 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 if we can really promote uh, this idea of, of worldview being the fundamental baseline that we have not used, instead we're using a baseline that really started with the colonization that has put us in so much trouble. Do you remember when we did the baseline work a lot when we first met? No. <laughs> yeah, what did we, we do? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we talked about uh, what would be a, a, a good baseline, and we referred to the to the indigenous worldview, uh, mm -hmm. you know, as a baseline. And I think that's where where we're at. Um, uh, and uh, and I, I think that if 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 we can just take a few minutes to talk about what worldview is, mm -hmm. um, for and then show our worldview chart. And so I know Lyle, you're you're ready to show it to everybody, so they can kind of get a sense of what we're talking about. What we're going to show um, to the folks out there is the worldview chart that we put together. It's based on a lot of research from uh, first contact reports. You know, for example, Columbus talked about how generous the indigenous people were. You know, and and uh, uh, we've got those, but also a lot of scholarship uh, from the anthrop apologists that weren't anti-Indian and, and seeing through the dominant worldview and call it causing, uh, referring to them as, as savages. Uh, uh, I, I just grabbed my University of Texas book and opened up to some of the things that people have said about indigenous people that make them reluctant to want to look at an indigenous kinship-based, nature-based worldview. Keeping in mind that we're not talking about place-based knowledge that can be misappropriated because only people that speak the language and have been in one place for a long time can know place-based knowledge. We're talking about the in common worldview that those many cultures share. Uh, and, um, uh, and, uh, and that's been put down, uh, you know, as, as ignorant savages for most of our, of our life until very recently. For example, um, uh, Christy Turner from the University of Utah uh, talked about uh, man corn, cannibalism and violence in prehistoric uh, uh, Southwest. Um, uh, so did uh, Stephen LeBlanc. He talked about constant violence, cannibalism and warfare among the Puebloans uh, in, his, in his book. Uh, uh, so here's a, a one by Lawrence Keeley, civilian massacres that prove humanity of humans is a product of civilization and uh, governments that overcame the horrors of primitive life. Um, here's oh, that, I get, I get, my blood starts to boil when I hear that because yeah, it's so I mean, mistaken. Exactly. And they just go on and on. I mean, UCLA, child abuse and other social maladies were far more pervasive in primitive societies than ours and proved the superiority of Western culture. And of course, we go on and on in, in the book on learning the language of conquest. And so when we talk about worldview, we and, and we talk about a binary of the dominant precepts of worldview that are scholarly, uh, uh, you know, we have scholarly sources for, and the indigenous people will say, well, wait a minute, isn't that a dangerous uh, binary? And 
it is if you look at it through our dominant worldview. You know, the George Bush either with with us or against us. You know, uh, the indigenous worldview, according to the scholarship, is a non-binary worldview. So, rightfully, some of my liberal friends will say, "Well, well, wait a minute. You're showing us these forty precepts." And you're saying this is better than these. Isn't that exactly, you know, the problem of, of our world? And we see it has been. When science and religion fought their worldview battles, it was about stopping dialogue. What we're looking at is the sacred space between the continuum of where we all are. None of us are immune to to the anthropocentrism or the materialism or the things that are on the left side of the chart. Even if in our hearts we feel different, we're, we are buying into that worldview, the colon, coloniality uh, uh, worldview. Whereas as we look at the other side, we see that as a continuum and we look at it in that way of finding complementarity. And so we're opening a dialogue. So let's show that, that yes, chart. Yes, showing it. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you think about when are, if we have, what problems we're having with our, our environment and our eco ecosystems and with wars and with each other, uh, you know, we can, we can take and begin to understand and talk about, well, to what degree is a rigid hierarchy problematic here or helping or not? And, and in how, what, what ways can we move into a non-hierarchical way. And you can just look down this list um, and, and get a sense of, now I had somebody in the clinical psychology program I, I was teaching about decolonizing curriculum. And right away, someone said, well, Four Arrows, you know, I'm not on the left side of this and nor is our program. And I could hear some him and hawing of her colleagues uh, and, uh, and you can move it down to the next 20, Lyle. And, so that the folks out there can can see the the second group, um, and uh, uh, you know, and and we you know we uh, are not emphasizing rights; we're emphasizing responsibility and stuff like this. And uh, I didn't say anything. I just kind of let her colleagues point out some differences that they had of opinion. But then, about an hour later, she said, "Oh, I see. These dominant worldview manifestations." describe our our systems they describe our education our economics our movies our folklore the way we interact with each other it doesn't necessarily mean it's how we feel or what we feel is right and i kind of wanted to say duh yeah you know of course but i think it's real important to recognize that we are all in the same boat and that space between these two opposites should be looked at for seeking complementarity and as sacred space. So I, can I clarify a few things? Yeah. Uh, the list on the right, the common indigenous worldview manifestations are practices that our species has employed for 6 million years, or at least 2 million years uh, since Homo sapiens came into existence. This is the way we survived, we thrived, we uh, adapted over generations. This is what helps us exist as a species. 
the left side is killing us. <laughs> the left side of the diagram is where we've been for especially the last few hundred years is super charged on the left side. And it's, it's, it's detached from the earth. It's dissociation. It's all the trauma that's been passed on generation to generation in the last millennia from uh, slavery, from the cruel hierarchy, from neglecting children more and more over time, less and less breastfeeding, for example, less and less touching and carrying children. All that is affecting brain development. And then you end up with adults that aren't so great at taking care of their kids. And that gets worse over generations. So the left side is uh, an aberrant <laughs> way of being on the earth, right? It's destroying everything. And the right side is our heritage. Well, and, and for those people who are saying, well, it doesn't, it doesn't that get into a strict binary? Because that position is, is the first position that anyone would think about. And it's, and it's certainly true, everything that you've said. However, in indigenous worldview, people look at opposites always as a complementary, no matter how, as a, as a potential complementarity, uh, no matter how opposing they are, because they say that in some ways, some of those things that we are doing that are abhorrent, that are destroying our world, that there's something in there that we can use to manifest a better way of operating in a more balanced and healthy way. Well, um, we, can, we can see yeah. that sometimes hierarchy is useful. So the, the book that we've brought up in our talks before, uh, The Dawn of Everything by David Graeber and David Wengro, just out anthropologist and a, um, archeologist, uh, they uh, uh, talk about how in our past, there's evidence that we didn't, we're not on this progressive linear kind of evolution of human societies. That's false. They're showing us evidence that there are societies that were uh, egalitarian bands for half the year. And then they got together for a few months and they had a hierarchy. And then they went back to the bands, right, of egalitarianism. And egalitarianism is part of, we evolved with big social brains so we could be egalitarian. It's really our uh, part of our heritage too. But this idea that we're on a progressive linear, there's nothing we can do. Going back is, you know, considered, oh, it's just romantic dream. No, there are people who live like this now, right? And uh, it's so it's the Western view is so rigid about its worldview. That we, that our idea for this book was to try to awaken people to the fact that these are things that we our species knows, you know, it's deep down in our bones, it's in our ancestors, and we can bring it back. We don't have to be the way we are. We don't have to be killing off everything. We can actually come back, restore our sense of connection, restore our healing capacities to be with one another, to be actually open and connected instead of bracing against each other. And there's a lot of things we can do to heal. Uh, and we talk about a lot of those things in the book. Right, and we can dispel the myth of progress and see that this last eight to 9,000 years has been a devolution, if you will, uh, into uh, something that we don't know what sense of complementarity it may afford, but whatever it is, it has us in a tragic tragedy uh, and at the 
edge of 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 an extinction. Uh, and no uh, yeah, nomadic yeah. foragers don't don't let big egos happen, right? They are fiercely egalitarian. They keep that ego from inflating because they say it's going to be dangerous. It'll be dangerous if this successful hunter thinks he's better than the rest of us. And yet we have a world full of big egos running us into the ground, right? Uh, exterminating all of us. Well, and the, the, the colonialization is something that we, are, we have to be aware of, that it's not just about uh, identifying the problems. It's about what was before colonization. And that's what our worldview is, uh, is all about. What was, what was lost? What was lost to us? And how can we get that, get that back? And since, you know, the destruction of life systems, water, air, is such a crucial thing, I think it's important to mention that the largest study ever done was the recent May 2019 released the United Nations Biodiversity Report. And it clearly said, if you go uh, put in uh, what the media missed, uh, the nation, you'll see uh, an article I wrote uh, uh, that identifies six places in the in the text where they said, where indigenous worldview is able to operate and, can, and is still remembered, the extinction rate is non-existent or severely re reduced. Um, and this is, you know, 15,000 peer-reviewed papers, 450 interdisciplinary scientists, uh, and, you know, from 50 countries. So we, we, the evidence is there. And like you, you referred to, to Graeber's book, you know, it, it wasn't there was just naked gatherer hunters running around uh, in ways that we would never want to go back to. They, they did uh, sustainable agriculture. They just didn't do surplus. They had uh, complex systems and, 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 and governments. Uh, but when we look at one of the studies like recently came out about 13,000 thousand years of uh, Amazonia and they had they had structures every bit as equal to uh, you know the most sophisticated places in Europe uh, and they, the impact of humans was significant as it the impact of ants is significant that we're supposed to have a, an impact and the impact was uh, a, a, an, a healthy Amazon without extinction rates you know without extinctions right and so, and this is, you know, this is going on today. Um, uh, I, uh, I had the uh, honor of being at a, at, a, at a meeting where some California state senators and people were talking about the water crisis a couple of years ago. And one of the, the speakers on the panel was the uh, chair, uh, chairman of the Chumash, you know, I think Kenneth Kahn was his name. And uh, turns out that per capita, the amount of water they saved compared to every other county in California, was like three or 400% per capita better from the techniques they used. And so I got up in line really right away after their presentations to ask a question. And I didn't know how it was going to turn out because Ken was in a suit and tie and I didn't know if he was, uh, you know, one of the many that have lost the traditional ways or not. So I asked the question, uh, I said, uh, I said, Mr. Khan, can you tell me if the Chumash spiritual traditions and, and the, the original worldview uh, had anything to do with your success. And I didn't know what he was going to say. And uh, I, I, I'll tell you what he said. I, I've got it here in writing. He said, and he said it with enthusiasm. He said, absolutely. That's the driver 
Traditional water is provided to us by Mother Earth, and whatever we take, we give back. With tobacco or a prayer, it is the driving factor in how water is used. We are small. We can put restrictions in place and can sustain a degree of sacrifice, but no doubt it was our worldview that was the driver. And this respect is about balance and our relationship to all things. You know, this is two years ago, right? Beautiful. And, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, so we're, we're all about getting back in balance with the earth. I think people talk about that, but they don't uh, necessarily talk about the importance of the heart-mind, the heart-mindedness, that sense of being one with the tree, with the, uh, the wolf, <laughs> with the clouds, that we're all entangled together, our biology, our DNA, our you know, our stardust, we are stardust, and we are all entangled together. Physicists are telling this to us now. Our DNA, our viruses are going in and out of our bodies all the time. Uh, they, they make us stronger, typically. Um, and, and so we have to remember where we are. We're Earth creatures. We are here to help other, uh, the other than humans flourish. And that's what indigenous peoples have done in, with their place-based knowledge, which is not, again, not what we're talking about. We're talking about that more delocalized way of understanding how to be a human, how to be connected to nature, how to be connected with cosmos, what we, uh, one of our colleagues calls the existence scape, right, of how to, to exist uh, as a human being in community with, the, in partnership with the earth. So um, again, we're trying to get people, uh, you know, uh, jiggle their understanding of things to start to move towards developing that heart-mindedness. Our child ra raising cuts that off, right? If you leave babies in distress, young children in distress, you spank them, for example, or let them cry, they start to have to cut out their feelings because they're not respected. And they have to, you know, stuff them down, as my husband says. <laughs> and then you, what are you left with? You're left with that the instinctive survival systems, you know, not feeling safe. And so you're always bracing, bracing, bracing. Or you, and you go to school and then you're taught to, to reason and not be connected. Don't think about the birds outside the window. You know, don't think about what you really feel. Just learn this information, take a test. So we really have to decolonize education as well, right? And bring this kinship view into how we are. The native way, the indigenous way of learning, learning is about self-transformation. You're trying to build your virtue, build your community connection, build your gifts, your unique gift, right? Each child has one for the community. So I'm going to ask you the tough question that was asked of me not long ago. Do you think this transformation through education and through uh, uh, community engagement and, and all the different ways, media maybe, uh, in, in our movies um, and documentaries. Can we turn things around? That's uh, really a difficult one. I think each person can turn themselves around and then have a ripple effect on others. So it, for when I've taught uh, undergraduates, I tell them to and help them learn to self calm because your your energy is you know going out in the world and if you're anxious or or afraid or angry you know it's going to have 
ill effects on others. So you want to learn to be calm and open-hearted and generous and kind, all the good uh, virtues that we talk about. And then you need to build that social connection. We played folk song games with one another because you have to be in the moment and that's growing your right hemisphere, which is uh, normally developed very rapidly in early life, but with undercare, it doesn't develop properly. And so you're not as empathic, you're not as self-regulated, you're not as uh, aware of uh, transcendence. And the, so all this, you have things to do as an individual as families, as communities, and we can build it out from there, but always in a sense of being connected to the place where you are, to love this tree and this river and care for this land here and not, you know, kill the spider you see. Say hello to the spider, welcome the insects, you know? So it's a different way of being, but be here now, right? It's presence. Be so present. you're saying you're saying individuals we can't do it, and we've both seen that in your work yes. and and in, in my cat fawn work, where people look at well, what is fear? Uh, how is indigenous uh, ways of thinking? Are, Why don't you, know, you talk about that now? Because our time is going. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it, you know, I had a, a near death experience uh, trying to kayak down the Rio Urique River, and uh, we had a mountain lion and a and a fawn that that came into our, uh, my partner and I's uh, experience and uh, had a vision of the cat and fawn that turned into letters. So it means concentration activated transformations, cat, which is essentially the phenomenon that we talked about earlier, this self-hypnosis, this believing in an image and meditation, uh, this healing. And we, we go into it easily, right? It's and just we, kind of a and, natural yeah. thing we do. Exactly, and we talk about that in the book. And then the full, we took four of the precepts fear, authority, words, and nature, and, and show how different our dominant worldview regards fear and, and, and is afraid of fear, and how indigeneity uses fear as a catalyst to practice a virtue once the fight or flight mechanism is gone. That authority in the dominant worldview is generally exterior, you know, the, the father, the pope, the teacher, etc., whereas lived experience, honest reflection on it under the umbrella of everything being connected is the, uh, the highest source of authority. People think that that we're a collectivist uh, when indigenous peoples, but really there's, we're, we're fierce autonomy, independence, but our independence is in behalf of the group. Um, words. Now we know we're in a post-truth world. The dominant worldview is, is uses language deceptively. You know, Kipling said it's our most potent drug. Words are our most potent drug. Um, in Tom Cooper's book, A Time Before Deception, shows that you know, words were sacred vibrations and our verb-based languages. So what you do is you look and you say, well, okay, the problems that I'm facing, what, what are the fears? And how can I use the virtues to practice a fear? What is the authority on this? And, and, and should that be the authority? Is it really true? What words am I using and are they accurate? And then the fourth one is in, fawn, F-A-W-N, nature. Have I used some nature, whether I'm in New York City and it's a, a weed growing out of the concrete or whether I'm looking at a squirrel in a tree, what can I learn? from the other than, than humans. So cat fawn is a very powerful technique that we talk about as a way to 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 uh, to do this this tra this transformation. You know, I personally on the whether we can turn things around before they get too bad, for me the definition of hope is not about an outcome. 
Uh, I don't think there's a really good chance we're going to turn things around, frankly, uh, in, in, at least in, a, in my lifetime. Or, or for the maybe, species? You mean for our if, species? If our, well, I think there's going to be... I'm, so I, I said that to someone up at University of British Columbia, and the, the next question was, they, they asked me if the worldview, we could do this turn around, like I asked you. And the next question was, well, why are you here? You know, and, <laughs> and, and, and I said, look, I want to be a human being. You know, and uh, I wrote a, a little, little monograph on Sitting Bull's words for uh, uh, a world in crisis. And Sitting Bull, you know, all, he didn't have hope. All the buffalo were gone. Smallpox was wiping people out. Worse than the pandemic we have now. You know, he, it was it was bad. But he never stopped singing. He never stopped uh, uh, creating songs or sun dancing or helping people or being generous or resisting or doing his. You know, it was like he's going to be a human being because he believed that we are, we are, we have these bodies that we have chosen and uh, that we're spirits that are inhabiting them that will continue continue on and uh, in, in, in some way, in some way that is too mysterious for us to be able to identify, right? But um, someone's going to have to rebuild. And, uh, and so that's, that's why we, I, I wrote the book, you know, so that people that uh, are going to rebuild won't be using one of these post-apocalyptic movies as an example with white guys with machine guns and, and bullets on their chest or, or dragging a, a woman by the hair, right? That they'll actually be looking at the kinship, uh, the kinship worldview as a way to, way to do it. That's right. So uh, what world are we in, according to the Hopi? The fourth or fifth world we've, we've wrecked? <laughs> yeah, Four there is. At least, right? And so, yeah, it looks like right. we're doing it again and we have to start over. We're not going anywhere, right? We're all stardust. We're part of the universe. And we just, you know, when we yeah. die, if we die normally, we just become part of other animals and plants and the soil. Yeah. yeah. Right. So if we just remember that relationships, responsibility, reciprocity, redistribution, instead of, I think you, you said in an interview not long ago, instead of the power and profit can guide us, then, uh, you know, certainly uh, the MISOC turned it around. Now, I know they already, they were closer to it, but they lost it completely. You know, the MISOC uh, of Southern Colombia had complete cultural, territorial, linguistic loss uh, and a lot of violence and suffering and alcoholism. So, um, you know, led by women elders, they regrouped and uh, and restored their place-based knowledge and the, the worldview that that represents. And today, only a generation later, you know, maybe 35 years later, uh, all of them speak their language, uh, uh, their, their, their mother tongue. Uh, they know the ceremonies. They regained land wisdom. They're healthy, happy, strong. Nine out of 10 of those who leave come back. Um, and so maybe that's that's more hopeful than, than my definition of hope, which is not about an outcome, but about what you're doing is the right thing to do, regardless of the outcome. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so, you know, maybe maybe what they lost is what we have all lost, and we can bring it back. So we need to uh, close up. Uh, I think we're very grateful for this opportunity. CIAS is really a marvelous place. We're just thrilled to be aligned with uh, its work. And we're happy that we had uh, people interested in our book and hope that it inspires everyone to actually have some hope of the active kind <laughs> to change your behavior, to change your mindset and adopt the kinship and act as a kin member, <laughs> kin-centric world. 
Yes, if people would look at uh, at the chart and say, what if, what if we all did this? What would be different? It'd be the way. So um, I would just like to uh, to close my portion with a with a Lakota prayer that I, I would not be able to put into English, but it talks about all the things that we have done in terms of uh, uh, our uh, giving gratitude for the interconnectedness uh, and, and the hope for the balance that we we all deserve to have. Tunkashila wakantanka namakompo natatewa topo unshibaka oyate oyasin chankuluta och namani oichakiapo oyate oyasin unchi wichalapana oichakiapo hachu wichosani washte unyuapiknilo mishanti atawa wograke ihani lako wichohani tukashila kisuye metako yoyasin. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional, unceded Ramaytush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about Native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the Indigenous land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lau Barrer at Desired Effect. The CIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA community, and all of those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities.